So we're rolling. Cool. We are live. This is You're Doing It Wrong with Mark Henderson-Leary, and my name is Mark, and I have a passion that you should feel in control of your life, and so I want to help entrepreneurial leaders feel more in control of their business. And so today we are here with Atul Veer, an old friend of mine, a guy I haven't talked to in a long time, a super accomplished, super experienced entrepreneur with just a ton of life lessons, and in fact, uh, just wrote a book that, that I'm, I'm excited to, to learn more about. How are you doing, my friend? Pretty good, Mark. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. I'm super privileged, uh, and I'm super excited because you and I have not talked in several months. And the last time we spoke, I think it was before this was coming out. And uh, I want to get want to get caught up. So, you know, how's it been? How, how's the how's the book been received? And what have you learned? And what do you, what's going on? Well, the book has been received well. I've got a number of good reviews and they're printed in the book and also on my website. Uh, so some professionals have reviewed it and they've given it. I'm not a professional writer or author. I'm an entrepreneur. And so that's a different world I inhabit. We, where we produce, try to produce good products or services. And uh, so I've been doing this almost 30 years. And I thought at one stage that I need to put everything down, all, all the lessons I learned. So, so I, I hear I that a lot, right? So you, you, you said, how long have you been an entrepreneur? 30 years? Almost 30 years. 30 started years. in 1991. So a lot of the people I work with, a lot of people I know can tell that part of the story. And many of the people I talk to will say, man, I should write a book. But you did. Why? Well, um, unless one comes from an entrepreneurial uh, or a business family where you know things, most of us become entrepreneurs because you have a dream or a vision of producing some widget or providing some service better than anybody else. And then you get in there and then you find out that it's completely different. You have to step into a different zone where you have to create things and make things happen yourself. You can't rely on anybody else. There's no real book to teach you. I mean, the actual things you go through as an individual to whether it's to produce or market or, uh, you know, um, do all the things, the multiple facets of the job that an entrepreneur is required to perform. You only learn that on the job. Yeah. And then I started writing these lessons down and I said, wow, I didn't know that. And then like I you wrote it down and, 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 just, and realized that you didn't know that when you started? That's right. Okay. Most of them you didn't know. Now, many of them we know these things, but we don't know how to apply them. But as an entrepreneur, you, you know, you learn them. And each one of them you can say is a failure or an acknowledgement or some kind of a light bulb goes, goes off and you say, wow, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And so I started writing these lessons down. And until I was... 70 or 80 lessons in, I said, wow, if I have 70 or 80 lessons that I didn't know, I'm sure if somebody is working in a corporation as a, you know, as a salaried employee, they wouldn't know these things. They wouldn't need to know them. So entrepreneurs are required to know certain things for their own survival. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I'm reminded of, of a contrast that um, in law, uh, ignorance is not a defense. Like you're, you're not allowed to say, I didn't know that was a speed limit. Like that's, that's not a defense. Like you, it actually is a speed limit and you actually get the ticket and you're actually going to pay the penalty. That's, that's not my problem. You have to learn that. Entrepreneurship kind of has the same thing. It's, you know, it's the law of the jungle. It's like, oh, just, I'm just going to be a better business person. Um, ignorance is not a defense. You, you have to, you have to survive. Oh, absolutely. You have to know, you have to know everything, including the law that you, your law example you mentioned, you got to know the laws. I mean, most of us comes, come from different disciplines, whether you're an engineer or whether uh, medicine or computers or whatever. I came in as a CPA, 
that was my profession and uh, I, I i got into making engineering products where i got into things that i relied on other people and certain people made mistakes and i was saddled with with uh, with the with let's say the consequences so you learn you learn on the job you learn how to rely how much to rely on people you learn management you learn trust you learn people trying to deceive you there's a whole bunch of things happening and then you have to also yeah. comply with the law that's the least of it well so it's, you said that you get your cpa background everybody every entrepreneur i, I know and this is, i guess as i say this is somewhat obvious they have some background very nobody is born well, even this is contradictory, I suppose. Many people do self-describe as being born entrepreneurs. But the reality, in my experience, is that there's something that they do, a discipline they bring to the table. They either have a sales background, a marketing background, an, an operations background, which typically is in the manifestation of the skill set, like they were the technician initially. Uh, and occasionally, there's a financial background. I, and I think the financial background is, is not uncommon, but it's probably the least common in my experience. And I, I mostly it's the technician background, like I was a plumber and now, I'm a, now I own a plumbing company, or I was a salesperson and now I'm running a business because I knew how to sell really well. But in each of those cases, you come to the table with a feeling of some degree of competency that as you described, immediately evaporates. <laughs> like you, yeah, I know how to do this, like, no I don't. <laughs> But because uh, because if you're an, if you're a salesperson, you got to learn accounting and operations, and if you're an operations person, you got to lose sell use in selling. So from the um, accounting and finance perspective, what was the rude awakening from your perspective about r running a business? Well, that's a great point, and from your question and your observation, the rude awakening. Well, uh, just to generalize, I mean, everybody comes with some background, but either you come with uh, let's say a science background where things are more scientific or the discipline was a science as opposed to a skill. Like sales can be a skill. I mean, it's not a science. You know, how do you convince somebody to buy a product? That's a, that's a skill. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, as opposed to, say, engineering or medicine or even accounting is a science. In, in accounting, it's very precise. Either you balance the, the, the balance sheet or you don't balance it, you know? I mean, there's, there are spe specific, specific science and some amount of skill involved in it. To top it off, I went to a military boarding school where we had order and structure. Everything was uh, defined, what time you woke up, what time you ate lunch, what time you went for sports, what time you went to sleep. And uh, so coming from that background, getting into entrepreneurship where, where sometimes you're, you're, you make a decision one day based on circumstances, the situation is fluid every day, you're required to make on-the-spot decisions. Uh, and sometimes you have to reverse yourself within the same hour. You say based on the new information. But that is a very big change and a very difficult requirement for people who aren't used to that. And so you were in military school, what, in high school? In high school, okay. yes. So, and then from there, you, okay, so you went into accounting in college. Yes, so, that's right. So I'm hearing well, you're just, you're very right. linear. We get structure, we're given orders, we know how this works, and then accounting, very law, scientific, and it couldn't be more opposite. That's be, right, yeah. that's right. And now we may have, I'm required to make decisions, required to see what's, what's happening and, you know, change. And people say, well, how did you do that? You just said something an hour ago. And I said, well, new information came in <laughs> and yeah. that required me to change it. And, and that's not a natural thing for somebody who's coming from a more scientific background or let's say, you know, as opposed to somebody from a skill set. A skill set, may, maybe they're not thinking in a linear fashion as yeah, much. Yeah, yeah.
Well, I see, I see people who come from a really, truly scientific background um, suffer from another challenge, which is sort of the idea of theory and exploration. Um, like the, to be a little bit harsh, maybe to like kind of almost anti-capitalist, like they're like, you know, we're doing this for truth and justice. I'm going to, I'm going to learn something. I'm going to do something. I'm going to follow a curiosity, which is um, great if you're in the R and D department, if, if you're in an educational situation and you're, and you're don't have any capital concerns, profitability concerns. And where from the op- entrepreneur perspective, it's like, there's always a ticking clock and there's always a fuse that's lit and it's like you knew you need to be productive now like i'm glad you are figuring out this thing uh for the greater good of humanity but you will not be able to figure it out past the zero line on the <laughs> in the bank account we've got, we've got to go uh and so i i've i've worked in companies where there's technology and there's entrepreneurial leadership team running it, and they've got a scientific team and they're just like having a ball like are you guys like go in any particular direction and they can burn a lot of money out of a company. So I'm just, I just, I'm just curious if you, I just, I mean, maybe there's no, maybe I'm not going anywhere with that at all, but I did see that, that that was a, a company I worked with in the past that, that had that problem. Uh, did you experience, how did you do, how did you react to the idea of like life and death? Like, you know, that's this, we're going to run out of money. Well, there are some entrepreneurs who, do the VC route and get angel funding or whatever it is. And the VCs work on a ratio of, you know, 99% failure and 1% success. And they invest in a Google or something like that. Most entrepreneurs, uh, including myself, did not have that luxury. We, I got into a bricks and mortar business that uh, wasn't sexy enough for people to invest in that would give, you know, multiples of their return. So we had to do it the hard way. You had to, we had to bootstrap. I had to take out funds from, from credit cards, get go on to bank loans and so on, where your personal guarantee is on the line and there is no scope for failure. I mean, the consequences, the legal consequences and to your credit rating and so on are very severe. There is no room for error. And so one has to be a bit cautious. And most entrepreneurs I know are not actually gamblers. They're, they're very cautious and uh, thinking about steps, even though to an outsider it may seem that entrepreneurs are sort of gamblers, but actually most are not, most of them that I know. Well, so, I, I've actually seen both. I've seen, I see that there is a gambling risk tolerance mentality, and I do think that some are better at it than others, that there are yes. successful entrepreneurs understand the risk, unsuccessful or struggling entrepreneurs continue to invest in the possibility and don't, don't do a great job of protecting the, the downside. I do see that a lot. So yeah. add the word successful to it, and I definitely agree. R- risk aware entrepreneurs are successful. Risk, overly risk uh, hungry uh, uh, entrepreneurs struggle well to that point i would say the I, I would just put a sort of corollary to that and say the higher one dreams and the higher your goals are the more the risk is because it goes up exponentially the the, the you because the bigger you are the more you dream the more um, requirements are there of whatever skill set is engineering or whatever is needed the legal requirements and reporting requirements go up exponentially the money required and one has not really been through that before you're dealing in uncharted waters. Yeah. So the risk of failure gets higher and higher. Well, that's a good point. And, and as I was, because I was thinking that through, and I, and I didn't want to oversimplify the sort of formula of like risk aware versus not, because what, what I see is there are the big dreamers. And uh, a lot of those big dreamers lose the fortunes multiple, multiple times. And we know of many famous risk 
unaware people who failed, 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 completely knocked it out of the park. That does happen. The, the dreams are big. And so there is kind of a relationship between big dreams and big risk. And I do, th- and I do see that the organizations who are successful with that know how to mitigate that. They know as the dream gets bigger, they've got to work harder to do the risk mitigation. Is if if not include somebody on the leadership team whose job it is to do that. Actually, I mean, in in, in the in the system that I that I work with, the EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System, we, we have terms for that. We have the, the visionary is sort of the person whose job it is to take the biggest bite of the future possible and to fuel the organization with all the ideas and inspiration. And that tends to be not that great at um, thinking of the downside, especially when you let them off the hook to do their best work. And then we have this function in the organization we call the integrator, which is sort of more the um, disciplined, data-driven boss who runs the organization from it. Like, you know, we have a plan and we have money and we can't run out of it. And 19 of the 20 ideas you brought to the table are not useful today. One of them is really powerful. And here's how we're going to integrate it without really upsetting, you know, knocking over all of our, all of our cards. And so I, I, I'm sort of thinking through this as you describe that, that, uh, you do to be successful to the extent that you have an, a high appetite for big goals. You're going to have an have an equal opposite force that channels that into the risk and into, into the downsides. Because I just see too often uh, all of the passion of the visionary upsetting the progress of the visionary. We have a great idea and it's working, and now I've got a new idea. And now I've taken my eye off the first ball and then I've disrupted it. And we have to have something that holds that together and make sure we're not losing it. So, so in your world, so it sounds like you're not a gambler, right? Is that fair? You don't like to gamble? Well, I go to Vegas very often for trade shows and so on, but no, I don't gamble there. Okay. But by definition, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm gambling. So, but you, you ended up as an entrepreneur. What was the moment? How did you, how did you go from regular human being to well, uh, I've described that in my book, which uh, is underdog thinking. And so all of us are underdogs. And I was an immigrant in the country about 30 years ago, and I couldn't get a job. It was around the time of the Kuwait-Iraq war. There was a recession going on at that time. And I had come in at a stage of my life where I had finished my studies, and I was looking for a job, and I couldn't get one. And rather than start again, I decided to become an entrepreneur and you know, came to Houston. At that time, Houston was going through a recession. They were giving office spaces as long as you signed a lease. Mm-hmm. They'd give you six months free. Okay. Uh, you, as long as you wanted to stay, you could rent an apartment without any down payment and get six months free. It was a good place to start. And, you know, entrepreneurs been... You can do school. anything you in can, six months. I that's got, right. <laughs> the problem so, is for another day. <laughs> that's right. So I signed those leases and started. And that's the story. I start off right from there. What did I do? I didn't have, uh, I didn't even have a social security card. I had 10 bucks. And so that's where I started from. And oh. then I built... So I, I got to stop you there because the 10 bucks thing, I've, I've heard many stories say that. What's that? Take me, take me to those days, $10 or, or whatever, $11, even if it's $100. I, I cannot fathom that. I, I mean, I just, I can't. And I don't know, I, I don't know what I would do if that were me. I can't, I have a very difficult time imagining my being success, myself being successful and persevering in that situation. It just, it just, it's just terrifying to even think about that scenario. What was that like? Well, it is very scary um, to know that's all you have. You know you have to, of course, you do have uh, some people around you who can step in and help you. 
but you know the clock is ticking. You need to go and do something. Well, it, ticking? I mean, $10? I mean, that's like 10 seconds. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. So certainly you're not having Starbucks in those days, you know, that's for sure. Uh, but yeah, I had to plan it out. I was already married. My wife uh, got a job. And, uh, you know, so there was at least some income starting to come in that was reliable. Okay. Uh, entrepreneurs don't have a reliable income. And even after 30 years, I cannot say it is reliable, you know. Right, um, right. So, yeah. so she had some, uh, and then I decided based based on what I was wanted to do was to get a job. I couldn't get one. I decided to become an entrepreneur. So at least there was some income coming in, based on her side. One cannot say you live on fresh air. Well, you know, you have to uh, continue. <laughs> and it actually took me a long time. I mean, it took me a couple of years by the time I could turn a profit. You know, so even then. Uh, just because you start a company and have an office, you still need to figure out what you're going to do and you got to hustle and go look for customers and produce your widget and um, market it and collections and set the whole thing up. And you're going back to 1991 where there were no computers. There was no Google. There was yeah. no way to find anything. We didn't even have cell phones. So it was a different world altogether, you know, and the way got things got done. But that's when we started. And uh, um, fortunately, it worked out. I found an idea for a product that I'd used in Europe that wasn't available in the U.S., and I decided to uh, start doing business. I thought there would be a need for it. Okay, so that's, that's actually the spark that I don't, I don't think is talked about as much as I want, and maybe I'm the only one that cares, but it's my show. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that. Th those moments of like piecing it together, like I, I, there's no opportunity for me. I've got to create it. And what is it, you know, what did you hear? How did you start to connect that to like, okay, I've, I've heard of this product. It's not sold here. It's an opportunity. It, you know, walk me through the thinking of just like, you know, I, of, of, you collect on the journey from like, I'm collecting hey, something on the side of the road that might be valuable to somebody else further down the road. You know, those, those steps to like, this might be a business. Well, the closest I can describe it is that whenever somebody goes to another country and we all travel, but even if you live in the U.S., you travel overseas to Mexico or Europe or whatever, uh, or to Asia, you, you, and you, the, the first day or the first few days you're somewhere, you say, wow, this place is really different. Mm. And see how these, how everything is different, whether it's the lighting or whether it's the traffic or whether it's the, some cleaning system or whatever it is. Fortunately, I had set up an international, international trading company, say, you know, uh, called Equator. And the purpose of that company was to trade products or services between one part of the globe to another, mainly between de the developed world and the developing world. Okay. That is what the goal was. So I was on the lookout for these things. And so in my own personal, and I started doing business with Mexico. That's the time the NAFTA deal was getting signed. And uh, so I started uh, some, doing some business there, import and export, um, you know, doing various products. But it, it was not really looking, it, uh, not really... So seeing, seeing what opportunities came my way. At that time, I had a large network in Asia, Africa. And so I told a lot of people, this is what I've started. And so people used to say, well, can you get this for us? And so I did a number of products, uh, you know. And then one day I told my wife, well, why don't we go to Galveston, go to the beach and it's Sunday. And she says, well, I got to do laundry. And we were mm -hmm. living in, in this apartment. And uh, so she said, I said, what do you mean? You know, because we had moved from Africa. And there we you had... Moved from uh, Africa. Okay. Yes. That's, so, what were you doing in Africa? <laughs> well, so I grew up in India, did my all my education in India, and then I got a job as a financial controller with a company in UK, in England, that okay. had operations in Africa. So they sent me as the finance manager of a branch, and then I grew to be 
the the country manager and regional manager and so on. And then the com- the company had problems because of overexposure of devaluations in some countries, and so the company started tanking. Okay. And so in seven or eight years, in the meanwhile, that got married. You know, um, my wife had lived in New York. She grew up in New York, and then she had moved to Africa. And I mean, we had a beautiful life, house on the beach, and you know, wow. I was 28, 29, and you know. It's <laughs> uh, what you call the expat life, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. So, uh, so when time came to make a change, see, she decided to come in and you know get things organized. While I came a little bit later on, and that's when all this happened. Yeah. So anyway, so when yeah. I came, I had the network ready. Yeah. So going back to the Africa story, the you know, to the, the going to the beach, Galveston, yeah, uh, going to Galveston. I said, let's go. And she says, well, I can't. I gotta do laundry. You know, we don't have any maids over here. So she used to go every Sunday morning from our apartment and walk 50 yards to the the coin up, the laundromat, mm-hmm. and then put coins in and then put clothes in the washer, then come back home, then, then 45 minutes go back and transfer from the washer to the dryer, then come back, then go back. I think everybody's been through that. Yeah. And I said, there must be a better way to do this. And in England, we had a, our apartment, our flat over there, and we had one of these combination washer dryers. And right, that it, yeah. it washed and dried in the same unit. And I said, why are we goofing around with this whole thing? Let's just buy one of those machines had enough money to buy a washing machine by then okay. and let's just go <laughs> ten dollars uh, becomes a hundred dollars yeah so let's go let's go to the beach what, what do we can't spend we can't work all week and spend all weekend doing laundry what kind of a lifestyle is this and uh, i mean we were in our early 30s and you want to do things you know yeah so we looked around we've said fine let's go around we went to sears in those days montgomery ward and all the circuit city and all those those and they said we'd have no idea what you're talking about there's no such <laughs> machine and we said, this yeah. is crazy. If we need it, we know it exists. We bought one in, you know, when we lived in London. Why isn't it over here? And that's when the spark came. I said, if I need it and it will be beneficial to my life, I'm sure there'll be other people who need it. Will, you know, yeah. so we're actually we're solving a problem. And ultimately, that's the, that's the key to it, that you must solve Identify the problem, solve the problem, and that's the business. Well, and see, that's the thing. I think that a lot of us hear that. Oh, you got to solve a problem. Well, okay, and you got to be simple. And it, okay, well, how do you do that? And what I'm hearing is a, a couple of things. Not the least of which is contrasting situations. Like if you if you stay in your hometown all your life, you you only know one way, and and you just you're not going to see the kind of things that are you're going to see if you travel and, and visit other cultures and because I remember when I visited Germany in 95 ish, we'll say 94, I saw one of those machines that you're talking about. It blew my mind. I thought I, how did they make such a device that both puts water in and puts heat in? I couldn't believe it. And, and I had assumed, this is funny, actually, I'm thinking of the thought process. I had assumed before such time, as I saw that device, that because these devices in the United States were always separate, that there was a physics reason that you could not put the two together. Like, ob- like it as a child, I was like, well, obviously you would make them one device if you could, but since they're not one device, they must obviously be necessarily separated, and so it couldn't possibly be combined into one. I just assumed that and let it go. None, no innovation. Now I'm in Germany years and years later. I'm like, what do you mean they can actually put those things together? And so for you, you were kind of the opposite side of that. Like, well, why don't we have one? That's right, because we needed it, and it just seemed like a sort of hampering our lifestyle, you know. So it didn't make sense to me, and it still actually doesn't. Why, why uh, so many people don't? <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's a lot of space—a washer and a dryer. 
space um, and time. And think of the time. I mean, yeah. who 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 really enjoys doing laundry? You know, I mean, uh, you you want to get it done as fast as possible and get back to whatever you're doing. So yeah, um, so yeah, so that's that's what I started, and then of course. Uh, as I mentioned, I was in my early 30s, and that's when you're young and foolish, and it's a big project. You're taking on the big boys and um, the big companies out there, and you know. And here I was, with not much money. Still, I mean, it was only a year or two since I'd started, and but I was on the lookout. So how I didn't even have a supplier. <laughs> okay. Oh wow. Okay. So I'm thinking about. Uh, I talked to a lot of people. In fact, I talked to a guy today starting a business, and he said, "Well, I'm going to try this for a year." <laughs> And just, just, and I tried to not be rude, and I don't think I was, but I was like, you know, that year, that first year, like it's, it's already gone. You don't, you don't even know it. That first year is gone, and and you're gonna, you're gonna think back a year from now, like I haven't done anything, like nothing that I thought would happen by now, will have happened. Now I, that's not universally true. Some people with tech companies, that there's a lot of traction very quickly, but most bootstrap companies, just the 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 amount of bandwidth they have to do the creation. And uh, of, of any kind of asset, whether it be a relationship or a marketing plan or a process, like they think they're just going to knock that out. And then like, like they can't even get like their tax ID. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing about entrepreneurs. The entrepreneurs, I mean, are optimists by definition and you're always hoping for a better tomorrow. Yeah. Now, whether that happens or not, that remains to be seen. But um, that's the first thing, you know, that you'll see. Uh, all of us are optimists and hoping and I've been doing this almost 30 years and I'm still an optimist even though I've shown in my book the extreme highs and the extreme lows. Yeah. There is failure too. We, go, we all go through it. Yeah, for sure. So, so, so you're getting to year two, year one. Where's your head? Oh, this is awesome. We're excited. We're like, oh my gosh, my wife is going to tell me I can't do this anymore any day. Well, the first thing was to tell my wife that I want to become an entrepreneur and then she, she thought I was nuts. But mm -hmm. anyway, so she said, if that's what you want to do, go ahead, you know. So then I started exploring this project, trying to find a supplier. I didn't know, so I went around. I found it wasn't made in the U.S. I decided since I'd seen it in Europe, I'd start going to you know trade shows over there, looking for suppliers. Most of them are very large companies, and they had no interest in talking to me who just started a company and I you know didn't have any money. But then I met it, uh, met a company from uh, Italy, hmm. and they had the technology, and they they were willing to adapt the European technology for American specifications, the voltage and safety issues, and a whole bunch of things. And uh, I said, well, I will dedicate my company to to marketing this. Uh, and so okay. that's what happened. And uh, so they so said, that's important, so right? So when people have ideas, in fact, I talked to an investor uh, who does a lot of investing in early stage. And he said something to me that was really interesting because uh, we already heard this. If you ever watch Shark Tank, they always say something to the effect of we're betting on the investor. We're betting on the investor about the person. This guy said the opposite. It's like, I don't care about ideas. It's like there's, there's a, we're, not, we're not having a shortage of ideas. That's not the missing ingredient. And I thought that was really insightful because that is true. Everybody's had a thousand ideas or at least a, at least a dozen ideas that, that, that could happen. And there's people solving problems by the dozen right now. And most of them never materialize. So you want to do something very simple on the surface sounding. We want to bring an appliance that's available all over Europe to, and all over the, basically the rest of the world <laughs> and bring it to the United States. Like this is something you can solve in the afternoon, but, but that's not what you experienced because you pop the hood on this thing. Well, what do we have to do? Well, 
uh, other than re-engineer the entire thing <laughs> and get a million or not a million, but many certifications and approvals and EPA and all this. It's like, wow, that's, that's insurmountable. So now you've got to go find somebody who's willing to do that in exchange for you marketing it. That's right. So, yeah, so that was a challenge because most people wouldn't uh, believe in you unless you're willing to say, I'm going to sell a million of something, you know, and yeah. I couldn't do that. So there was this sm one small company that was willing to take a chance. And then finally, then I had to be able to finance it. Then I had to go and find customers and say, okay, do you want to buy this product? And they say, who are you? What's the brand? I decided to call it Equator. Uh, you know, so who's Equator? Do you have parts? Do you have warranty? What's your service network? That's the other side. How are you going to support it? By law, you got to have parts for seven years. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so you can't, be, even if it's out of warranty, you can't expect customers to buy your product and fizzle out in two years and there's no parts, even if, even though customers may be willing to buy parts. So there was nothing of that. Mm. I was, you know, had a international trading company, so I had to change my thinking as to how I wanted to make this work. And finally, you know, we became an appliance company after three or four years. So I ditched everything else, you know. So what did you? What were you letting go of? Well, there was the other uh, internet, the, the trading part, trading with Mexico and with Europe and the Middle East and other things. You know? Okay. So, so you, you were you were just you were brokering you Bro brokering okay. deals, yeah, just uh, you know, like like a like a rep, you know, yeah. getting commission. So you probably you'd have vendors and, and products that would kind of come in and out of Vogue. You, somebody would say, "Hey, I think you got a network that I can get my product through." And, yeah, we like the product. Right. My guys will, will probably buy that stuff. And okay. Yeah. And you were like, okay, we're, well, that's been fine, but it sounds like it was. Well, was it, was it, how hard was it to let go of that? Were you tired of it or were you like, no, this is pretty safe, but I'm betting on a bigger outcome? Or what, what was the decision process of letting go of the old stuff? Because I see a lot of entrepreneurs who have, it's very difficult for them to let go of the past in favor of, of the future. Well, I think this, uh, this project uh, uh, became so interesting. I'm talking about the laundry project. Uh, mm -hmm. They became so interesting and I got sucked in, you know, uh, because... The, the requirements, I mean, I was happy. In fact, there was a company here. Uh, it, it, it was a rent-to-own company, and they were close to my office, and I called them, and I, and I said, you know, said, this is the product I'm selling, and you have 500 stores around the country, and, you know, why don't you just buy it in the container loads, and this is the price, and I just want to have 5 or 10%. That's what I was doing. Oh, wow. Five, they, 5 or 10% was your the margin gross margin off the product to them yeah i was just a commission agent i didn't have the money to buy containers so i said okay it's a hundred thousand dollars i'll make five percent maximum ten percent you know that's my commission and you take it and run with it and the guy said not so fast you know what about the service and parts mm -hmm. and so on okay yeah we're not if you bring it in we can buy from you but i said well what do i do he's saying well why don't you start a company this seems like a good business we'll be your first customer and I said, well, I don't even have a brand. They're saying, here's your card, Equator. Call it Equator. <laughs> so it was just, you were just a sole proprietor, Equator? was it, yeah. you know, okay. I had a and few people doing helping me in the other part of it, but this yeah. was my pet project that I was yeah. working on because I was the only one who had used it when I lived in London. So I knew what the product was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... And so, so as I got, so then I had to set up the service network. I had to set up a warehouse. I had to set up logistics. And I got, it took more and more of my time. So instead of me spending 10% of my time on this project, it became 90% of my time because to set it up as an appliance company. And finally, I said, what am I doing? You know, this is where I'm going. This is where I got a customer. This is, he's willing to work with us. And so, uh, so even when it started, we were doing other things. But over the next few years, everything else tapered out, you know, so. So was, 
was that as you started describing like setting up the, the all the things that had to come to uh, did you feel like I'm not kind of like I know the answer because I started get, getting kind of overwhelmed like I gotta set up the warehouse and all this other stuff and like that oh my gosh what did I what did I hitch my wagon to this is much more than I thought um, it sounds like to, you were like well this is this is exciting it's very exciting when you have a chance to I mean it's every entrepreneur's dream to change and entire industry as you say nobody knows about this product you have hundreds of millions of people that's a huge market that can be convinced of course it's a small market we were dealing in a compact size product apartment size product yeah and anybody everybody needs to do laundry just like you need to eat food so it's universal and uh, so if, if I if I bring in a product and I can convince somebody that my product is better than the existing widget out there then that's what it is I need to have I need to provide I need to provide so I looked at all these people as giving me good advice telling me I need to have service need to have parts need to build the brand need to do marketing but you know uh, anyway it, it just goes on from there and I got sucked in and I didn't even have the money okay so, okay that's important right so that's I think a lot of people get stuck there like, I, I could do this if I just had money and a lot of entrepreneurs I mean well a good example at this Donald Trump, as an example, always, you know, like I, I didn't have any money for anything. Now, the veracity of that is sort of irrelevant. For me, it just seems like, you know, I, even if Donald Trump was able to negotiate purchase, purchasing hundred millions of dollars worth of property with no, and, and no way to buy it and figured it out and got it done on handshakes and, and favors, um, that's still a major obstacle for people. Like, okay, we don't have, we don't have money. Like, we, we, what did you do to figure out how to make this happen, knowing there's a lot of money needs to get spent? Well, you know, the first thing was to build trust with the, uh, with the supplier, with, with, with the plant in uh, Italy. So once they had done their part, they'd sent me samples and I'd made, tweaked it. And once we all agreed that, yes, this is the product that's going to go, then they said, fine, we have the first container ready, which is a 20-foot container with 54 pieces in there or something. And they said, okay, we're ready. We've done everything that we said we we're going to do. Now you better now, sell, buddy. Now you better send the money. <laughs> okay, so they did everything up until this point on yes, their dime. On their dime. I had to pay for samples and ship it and so on. You know, but what, what, what order of magnitude? What kind of money was this talking about? Tens thousands of dollars, five thousand dollars, five hundred dollars. Uh, I mean, for the actual container, it was about twenty-five thousand well, okay. dollars. So you had to come up with twenty-five, 25 grand. 000. Okay, all right. So in the meantime, I'd built up my credit. I got. I'd started off with a, with a small credit card and I understood the system that you needed to take credit and you need to pay down the credit and keep having credit in order to get more credit. You should never have a zero balance, otherwise you'll never get credit. Mm -hmm. So those are all the lessons I learned as a new immigrant, that yes, you can get credit, but you must be credit worthy and get into the system. And so finally I built it and in a couple of years I had $25,000 worth and I went to the bank and I cashed out $25,000 worth of credit cards and I said, I cannot allow them to lose confidence in me, mm -hmm. otherwise mm -hmm. that's it. Yeah. And in 24 hours I had wired them the money and I didn't have the single, I didn't have one written purchase order except promises. Ah, okay, so that was the day, they said they're ready, I'm going to ship them to you and you said, I'm paying you now. Yes, that, okay. that's right. And then they shipped it. And then I went to arrange for a warehouse. It came to Houston. And uh, then I went to the customer, the rent-to-one customer. He kept his word and bought some. And then, you know, just kept rolling and kept building it from there. You know? What do you think was the, I don't even want to say secret sauce, or I'm hearing a, a, a story and a path of trust and good faith and gratitude and trust, 
I don't know if I said that, but that, but trust people you trusted and people who trusted you. And that is in contrast to a lot of stories I hear. Not all of them. I hear, I hear trust-based stories, but I'm immediately contrasted with people who say, yeah, you know, I had to do it this way because I got burned last time. I had a partner. He ripped me off. I had this vendor. They ripped me off. I had to sue him. And there's a lot of fear in entrepreneurial communities and a lot of, uh, bitterness and scar tissue out there about getting burned. And so there's a lot of very uh, aggressive advice on how to protect yourself as a business owner and don't trust these people with your money and all that kind of thing. And I think there's a lot of pragmatism to that. And I think, I think you have to be smart with controls. Um, but you, this, the secrets to your success was people saying, handshake, let's do this. And so how did you, how did you come up with that? How did that, how did that come about? Well, I think the first uh, trust is between you and the customer that you have to be able to deliver. I mean, if you're creating a new brand name, why is a customer who knows Whirlpool, Maytag, Amana, those were the brand names in those days, why are they going to buy something called Equator that costs $1,000? So mm-hmm, you're always right. trying to build trust. And so that's the first one. Then a couple of years later, I had a customer. He loved it. He's a distributor out in the Midwest. And he said, I want to buy a couple of containers of these. And here's the purchase order and it's worth $100,000. And I said, I don't have the money, hmm. you know, because we were bootstrapping, you're building it up, but you don't have $100,000 to suddenly jump it up, you know? Right, right. So he looked at me square in the eye and he says, how much do you need? I said, I need $100,000. <laughs> and he looked at me and he says, are you good for the money? And I said, yeah. And he took out his checkbook and wrote me a check for $100,000 and gave it to me and he walked off. Who does that? Yeah, seriously. Okay. Yeah. So there is trust. There's nothing. He's on the trust that I'm going to deliver the product. It's going to be what he ordered, and it's going to be a good product. It's not going to break down, and you know I'm not. I'm going to disappear. There's a lot of things at play over here. So uh, you have to trust. You have to believe that your customers will trust you. You have to believe your suppliers will trust you, and you have to be trustworthy. And so you have, you know, for them to say, okay, we're going to trust this guy. But conversely, it is also true that people who want to, pardon my language, who want to screw you, they can take advantage of you. And in my book, I outline three cases of that, big ones, where I've been screwed by. Um, okay, I'm glad to hear you say that, because that's a good yeah. contrast. Like, it's so, not all roses and, so, and rainbows. So, no, it's absolutely not. No, uh, there is, there, I mean, there is, uh, I, mean, uh, I don't know if you know, but business is one of the least ethical fields compared to perhaps lawyers being at, at the bottom because people perceive that we're doing all this for money. Yeah, but right, there's right. more than it. But I had suppliers who, who didn't honor what they were supposed to do, made products that broke down, and you think they're going to take care of the product they made? They said no. They bailed on me, and I was stuck wow. holding the bag. It's with our name. Yeah. We have colleagues who you trusted in part of my team. They let me down, committed fraud. Okay, yeah. You have uh, other partners, business partners. Uh, one of the reasons why entrepreneurs don't like partners too much is because between partners, things can happen. There's a lack of ethics and what you may seem... Well, you, and then there's a lot of gray areas. And what your understanding of what the way things are to be done is somebody else doesn't think it's the same way and you don't, you're not same, with the same level of ethics. Somebody wants to take a shortcut. So I've had three major experiences, again, which I outline in, in the book, to, out, to show these things can happen. I'm not immune to that. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, and these things particularly happen when you're in the downturn. When things are going up and up, you have money right. to pay for things. You have money to pay for lawyers. You have money to pay for expert advice. But once you're in a problem, then you're in a, then in, in, and if you're in the start of a vortex, I had a quality problem and everybody thinks you're going down, then the sharks are circling. Right. Everybody wants a piece of it because they, okay, let's get him before he gets down. And once you live through that, so actually you can become a cynic at the end of I the day. I was going to say, did you, because it sounds like you built the business on trust and then took, took it on the chin a few times. Were you able to keep that trust and be able to nurture that? Did you, were you at risk of losing it or how, what, how do you feel now? Well, at the end of the day, you know, I reached all the way to the bottom and um, at that's the time you actually search what is the meaning of what I'm doing. Yeah. Is it is it all worth it? Is it all for money? What is it for? And finally, I found the answer. And the answer is that, yes, it is worth it. What is the bigger purpose for what I'm doing all this for? Uh, apart from, let's say, feeding your family and, you know, doing the things you need to do. you got to find the greater purpose of what it is. And I found that. And then I look back that even though I had these negative experiences, think of all the thousands and hundreds of thousands of individual customers who trusted me in buying my brand. And the average cost of my products is $1,000 each. That's mm -hmm. not chicken change. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they, and that's trust. So, yes, I got screwed by three or four or ten people. But I have hundreds of thousands of customers who are grateful to me and appreciate the, the products I've developed and make to make their lives easier. At the end of the day, I think I'm still a beneficiary. Yeah. So the highs are very high and the lows are very low. Yes. And in the meanwhile, I found the meaning of what I'm actually searching for. Well, so, you know, two questions come to mind now. One is, and I'll go over there first. What is your purpose? The purpose at the end of the day, and so the purpose has changed. So the purpose used to be, like all entrepreneurs, I want to big, build a big company, a successful company, build a $100 million company, maybe issue an IPO one day. And, you know, that is the ultimate success. Right. Mm -hmm. We all dream of that. And you yeah. say, this is what we want to do. Yeah, yeah. And as I went through these experiences and I realized that the trust that I had built with my dealers and distributors. And when I came back and found out that I wanted to better build a better product because, you know, and I built a better product and they were willing to come back despite of all these problems I had is because I had the customer relationship and the trust with them. So my customers were superior. And I decided to build, you know, so I found that instead of building a big company and going on numbers, I decided to make making customers happy. Yeah. My goal. So every machine I build, I say, is my customer going to be happy? I, mm -hmm. The features that I design, are those what the customer wants? Is it easy to understand? Easy to install? Is it properly packed? So when the customer receives it, they open it and they say, I spent $1,000 and still I'm full of joy. There's no remorse for buying this product. And they say, wow, I made a good decision. Do my customers feel that? And then they use it and they say, wow, I'm so happy I found this product. That is my goal. It's not numbers anymore. Of course, we need numbers to run an organization, but that's not the primary goal. So I, I love that because it tells a very gestalt story of uniqueness. And that, because I always say that if you're going to try to compare in the paperclip business, you're probably going to get killed unless you have a passion for paperclips and then no one can stop you because you're thinking about paperclips all the time and these are going to be the best paperclips and, and, and everything is like that and, and there's a lot of things that I 
you know, in, in the system we talk, we call it the core focus and the core focus is about understanding why you do something and compare and, and combining that with what you do. And, you know, you could say, Hey, we just make, make washing machines. Like, okay, cool. Like I've seen those. We make washing machines that bring joy to you. It's like, who does that? Like that's a unique space. And suddenly your path is clear and suddenly like, wow, I don't want to, if I'm a washing machine person, like I don't want to compete with that guy because he likes these things and, <laughs> and most people don't care that much. So it, it's a very powerful combination of things that I, I, to me, it just lights up. To me, it's a very clear distinction. Yeah. And that's the reason the name of my book is called Underdog Thinking because I'm the underdog. We're still right. independently owned. Uh, we're still competing with the major companies out there. And I would prefer being in my shoes, thinking and how to make my companies, my, my customers happy, instead of being in their shoes and thinking how do they have a better, successful financial quarter. We have a complete disconnect in our goals. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah, so interestingly, um, I work with a company who is very good at what they do, and they have... lost their way a little bit and I know they're going to listen to this. So I got, I got to be, be blunt and clear. Uh, and what we discovered is that uh, they got a little caught up in the pressure to compete and, and maybe just win in an unspecified way. A lot of, a lot of competing forces in their world that, that pushed them to perform more and more. And the owner founder kind of, found himself very frustrated if not just really disappointed like why are we not doing like we're doing better than we were I mean like they're doing well like you can look at the company and say the company's doing well but something doesn't feel right like at all and it be, and we we got to what I think is either the bottom or very close to it and it was that there was a time when excellence was at such a high level that every single client they ever had loved them and that time had sort of past and, and he longed to get that back and it was I think that emotive side I think we get caught up with like hey we're doing washing machines like let's get more washing machines it's like no 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 washing machines that make you joyful <laughs> that's not the same thing you know it's services that are at the highest level of excellence you miss that ingredient and it's not the same thing anymore at all the machine doesn't work on our end our business doesn't grow I don't feel happy I don't feel good about my legacy it's not worth it. Nothing works without that one word. And I think a lot of people miss out on that. Well, I think we all go through that. And our company was also in that same phase that you mentioned. We were looking for numbers. And, and so it, you have to go through a certain metamorphosis or whatever to uh, realize what the bigger purpose is. You know? And we had to go through uh, almost like a recall and have thousands of machines go down. And all that is described and uh, how, how we had to go through that and the painful process in trying to save the brand and take care of customers and so on. And, uh, and finally, when you land up and you say, okay, this is what we did, what's it for? It's all for the customer. You know, the customers have to stand by you. And so if the customers stood by you and are still willing to buy your product dis despite what went wrong, then you must work for the customer. That's ultimately at the end of the yeah. day. I mean, there's only one way, and how do you achieve that? I mean, the only way to, to do that was with organic growth. I mean, you push, I mean, every, every uh, 
every business is almost like an orchestra you know you got a perfect balance of purchase and sales and inventory and sales and you know accounting and collections and r&d and so on and if one thing goes out of balance then something goes up right so we're all we're all trying to achieve that balance but it must be organic and uh, i think if if you push one side in this example sales then something is going to get compromised maybe somebody in your customer service is not uh competent enough and not able to take the load on and that's what happened to us we were we were not focused on that we thought things would run we th- we thought the future would be like the past <laughs> okay yeah, and yeah just because things have run the same way for the last 5 years or 10 years doesn't mean tomorrow will be the same there are challenges and the whole world is changing and things can change in an instant and you have to be able to foresee that and make the changes and you know Uh, so in my world, I call it the, you know, we, the people who do what I do, the system that we use, uh, we call it hitting the ceiling. Every business experiences it, every individual experiences, every department is growing and doing their thing, getting better, getting faster, getting happier until they're not. And we, and then we get stuck and we're like confused because we weren't told that we all, all get stuck at some point. We, no we, entrepreneur. We, we, No, but to hear that. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're all invincible, we so, believe so. so. So what I think is so tricky about that is that we don't always notice or we're not we're not aware. We're busy. We're very busy. We're just turning we're trying to grow. Like I got a point, like we're at a million and a half and we're going to get to two. And so all I can think of is we got to get to two, got to do more 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 or faster 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 whatever. And and then we're frustrated because we're getting stuck. But we don't we don't have the presence of mind to say like, "Oh, maybe I'm at a ceiling. Or maybe I got to re-engineer my thinking at this at this time." We're just like, "Oh, I guess I just messed up last week. I guess I just got had a bad day. I guess and so I'm going to try harder. More of it." What did you feel when you when you hit that that's that spot where you described it where we thought the future was going to look like the past and you realized at some point it wasn't before you had the realization that something had to transform what did it start to feel like what did you see what symptoms ex- exhibited Well I mean uh, in our specific case we found uh, machines more machines were breaking down which is uh, which is a sign of let's say a quality problem we found our own team wasn't able to take care of the problem we found the technicians overloaded we found more customers complaining and all of a sudden it seemed like the goal as a ceo was becoming more difficult because we're not always keeping in touch with all those parameters that i just described right there right. is more of this and more of that and more static in the background and you say well deal with it you're the manager deal with it why are you telling me with all these problems what mm. are, what are you getting paid for and then it builds up and all of a sudden so so when i mean i'm just saying that it happens you know So and that is actually what stops the company because the CEO is looking at growth that's the primary I that most CEOs believe that their primary job is to grow the company but I've changed my mind. Okay. What it, so what, what do you say now? I believe the primary job of a CEO now I tell my people if you have a good deal today I don't want to know I don't care. It's great that's what we're supposed to do but I don't need to know that. I need to know the problems in the company. The problems that can be catastrophic. So I need to know how many machines broke down, how many in every shipment, in every truckload, what's the percentage of machines that broke down, how many pumps, how many valves, look at those percentage because that can be catastrophic. And I've shown in the, my book some of those theories, uh, described it and made a graph, uh, you know, as to how to manage, let's say, foreseeable risk and unforeseeable risk. And it's the unforeseeable risk, what you're not calculating, that is, the most difficult to manage and i think the most the top job of a ceo is to manage risk because that can be catastrophic to the company well so 
I, I, I want to dig into that, but at the same time, I also kind of recognize that that could sound to a lot of people listening to this, um, like, oh my gosh, are you not rewarding your people for successes? Because you know, we, we're, we're taught, we don't, we're not celebrating successes. I mean, many entrepreneurs are kind of um, criticized and I observe it fairly. I mean, it's, it's a fair criticism. Many entrepreneurs get going and they stop rewarding and recognize their employees for really good hard work and they get, they get caught up in the negative stuff. And that, that's a fair concern. Uh, and so I want to ask in a second about that. But what I'm hearing is that um, you had to get bigger ears. You had, to, you, you, were, you had to listen for the things. Like at a smaller company, you were able to kind of predict and know what was broken and what was not. And as things grew, um, you had to turn on a, a more sensitive hearing system of what's going wrong, what's breaking, so you can make better decisions in a different way. Oh, absolutely. We had to change our internal system. So when uh, when the company was, when came back with the new products and so on in, in the comeback uh, period, we had to devise all these new systems. But at the same time, to what you're saying, I realized that this, the entrepreneur, who's also the CEO in this case, has to be decisive and you must realize that you as the entrepreneur and the driver and the CEO has got a different responsibility to every single other employee in the company. When the problem happened with me earlier, the employees left and said, okay, we are sorry the company is having these problems, but if you can't pay me, I got to go. I mean, I have to feed my family and earn a living. Yeah. And they left and got other jobs. So it changed my thinking that saying the overriding uh, responsibility of an entrepreneur is to ensure the safety of the company. Mm, yeah. It's like you're driving a car. The safety of your passengers is the overriding concern as a, and you cannot say speed is the overriding concern. The safety, without safety, you're dead. Right. So in the first case, uh, when all the employees left, I said, see what happened? I was looking out for you and worked so hard and paid myself last, like all entrepreneurs, you pay your yeah, employees before yeah, you. Yeah. And now you ditched me, you know, at, at the last moment when I thought you'd be here and help me come out of this. And they're saying, we love you. You know, we want to be here for you, but you know, we got to feed our families. We have to, we have responsibilities. I mean, I'm sure that was reasonable, but entrepreneurs like to believe that everybody's loyal and they'll stay. Oh, no, I've, I've heard so, that story over and over and over. I experienced yeah. that. I've definitely experienced, like, you know, I'm exactly what you're saying, that loyalty. Like, I, I, I'm i sure that story you described hit a nerve of lots of people who listen to this, for sure. Yeah. So, so I go back to the point that it's the safety of the company and you have to be take decisive, those, those, those decisive decisions for the safety of the company and watch for those danger points. Yeah. Because what's going to happen? Everybody leave and you'll be left holding the bag. Right. And sometimes the safety is having, is getting rid of, and well, not sometimes, very, very often safety is improved by getting rid of people. It might be the wrong person in the wrong seats, being aware that you've got the, the job that you gave Joey. I'm, I don't know how many people I know are named Joey, but Joey is my default person. So give, give Joey the management responsibility. He's great for a year and in year two, he's terrible at it Well, because it's bigger. It's, and, and now I love Joey, but Joey can't do this job. And now it's not safe for this company if I leave Joey in there, even though I love Joey. And a lot of entrepreneurs have a very hard time with feeling like the bad guy. But I love Joey. He's been so loyal. But to your point, this company is not safe. The stability, the erosion of this foundation, like we could all be at risk if I don't get Joey out of that is not a responsible CEO if I leave that person there. 
Well, the same is this the, it's going back to one of the earlier points that is it a skill or a science? There is no science to describe that at what point does a person uh, outgrow his responsibilities and by then the person has been very uh, loyal uh, to you and you know it, I mean with time also you build loyalty. I mean people are willing they're good at their jobs but they're not willing so you can, you hope you can train them to bigger responsibilities just like we are growing as individuals as an entrepreneur is also growing in our right. every day you expect that your team is also growing and you help them out and get them more training and so on but yes you're right some sometimes people don't don't grow well in the best of uh, circumstances i can find a seat for joey if it's not the seat he was in or, or i can mentor him up or i can put him in another seat for a while and get him back into it um but the but the the ultimate truth is that uh we cannot sacrifice the health of the business because everybody's at risk when we do that and even if we don't do it elegantly and we and we don't make good people decisions that that's that's a that is the most common problem i encounter what else did you encounter i heard you or heard that you were developing systems and processes and metrics and things to make it easy for the information to get to you was that was that part of did i hear that right Yes. So uh, in our new system, what we actually said, okay, uh, because of the previous problem where we found that uh, machines were breaking down, reports were not being submitted, and I was focused completely on sales and building that large successful company, that which was the definition of success, that maybe the reporting systems weren't there. And if we had been looking at the operation side a little bit closer, then things wouldn't have happened that, uh, you know, we would have been alerted to the fact maybe uh, much earlier. So when we came back seven or eight years ago, I said, I'm going to change the system and we developed our own software. We said, okay, even though we're selling appliances, we must be like doctors and we must have a similar system. So we want to know in this case when any appliance, and we've got 20 product lines, we've got washing machines, refrigerators, dryers, freezers, range hoods, cooking, and so on. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I'll just give washing machine as an example because that's our core product. We want to know when the machine is, when we place an order, and most of them are produced overseas. So you place an order, it's 90 days lead time. We want to know when the machine is produced. We want to know the serial number, which ship it comes in, which container number. We've got different distribution centers around the country. And which, where does it go to? At what point does it go to a distributor or a dealer? Uh, or and, and fill in all the gaps. Then you have a customer calls in. And we, we tie that into the previous information, which the serial number of the machine. And we keep tracking the customer for every call and every interaction until the death of that machine, which may happen 10 or 15 years down the road. Really? Okay. So and you track the, the life cycle of the machine That's from right. birth to death. That's through. right. Wow. So we want to know, and then we track every single shipment, every truckload, every every container. So for example, somebody called, uh, there was something that happened a couple of weeks ago. Some Some particular component broke down and so I put in a call to the, uh, uh, let's say, service manager, and I said, I want you to track this and see, is this a problem in that container? Because I've, I've mm, been getting right, the right. buzz, two or three have this happened. Is it a, is it a big uh, issue? And he came back and he said, no, that's all that there was. There was nothing more, and there's no more of that, because is it an epidemic? Yeah, right, we're right. hearing what epidemic. Is oh, it an yes, epidemic, yeah. In, yeah. epidemic in the machine that you can have a, a pump supplier or a valve supplier somewhere in some other part of the world who's depending on a particular raw material or rubber yeah. or some process in the third part of the world. I mean, everything is tied in. And as a result of some production flaw, a washing machine is breaking down. Right. You well, have I, to be able yeah. to be proactive as opposed to reactive. That's yeah. the difference. Well, and so to that point, I don't, 
not how valuable this point is, but I remind I talked to somebody recently who was having all of their equipment manufactured in China, and the, the 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 contract manufacturer they're working with decides to substitute parts. Just like you know, we're not using it's close, and doesn't tell them, and they've got like hundreds or thousands. It was thousands of products in, in your situation. Like oh my gosh, it's got the company name on it, and they're broke, and it's the wrong thing, and they have to. And every it's like I think it was a like a fifty dollar or a five hundred dollar piece of equipment that that required like two hours of service per device to replace this this piece of hardware. So you have to be on top of that, and so the fact that you've got the systems in there to, to do that. So what you're describing to me is what I'll loosely categorize as process. And when I am advising companies to get their arms around process because they want better quality and more efficiency is there's an order. And so the first order is to get the, the core values and the, your culture locked down. That's important. Do people believe in quality? Do people believe in joy that you, you can't, you can't have a joyful laundry uh, or washing machine if, if the people that you're working with don't understand the importance of that. Working that to real clarity of real accountability and how do they sit the, the tool I call the, we call the accountability chart allows them to, to know exactly what they're accountable to get done. So they've got role clarity. Those two have to be in, in, in place. And when you've got the right people in the right seats, which is, what that combination of factors does, then you look at building process because I don't believe that you can out-process the wrong employees. You've got to get the, with the wrong responsibilities and the wrong structure in the business. Once you get that figured out, you've earned the right to build process. And all this to lead up to when people finally get in position, all right, we need to increase consistency and quality and intelligence and then measure that. We're going to build process. When many of the companies I work with now are the very earliest stages of developing their process. And some of them have very sophisticated process, but a lot of them are very early in that. And when I can imagine they're hearing you describe automated metric driven process from birth to death of a machine, they're like, wow, that's a million light years from where we are right now. How, how did you go from no process to some process and how long did that take? Well, it was actually a realization, and uh, we had to experience failure to ultimately, to ultimately know this is what we had to do. I mean, at, at most companies manufacture or market widgets, and then you you expect your uh, you. Um, um, we're all buying products and components and suppliers. There's always some process. You're not creating something from nothing. You're always getting mm -hmm. so. The question, well, I guess manufacturing is built around process. So I'm so I, I'm, yeah. as asking the question, I. You know, maybe you were forced into process by nature of the business. Like you're, you're in manufacturing world and, and the very first word out of your supplier's mouth is, all right, well, here's the process. Or, oh, I guess process is part of our world. Or did you struggle with process at all? We had no, we had process for distribution, but we had no process to manage our own future. Okay. The, so when, when somebody lets you down on the supply side and says, okay, this is the product. And then finally the product is not what it was. And then that affects you. You say, well, we need to have greater control over that. And how do we do it? So you set up an additional process, which you hadn't considered. It becomes more complicated, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, do you have checks and balances and so on to do things which you don't really believe is your responsibility. You say, <laughs> hey, this is what we're supposed to do. Now you're making me do this. That is the biggest shift to accept the responsibility to say that I am the entrepreneur, this is my brand, this is the widget, and I accept complete responsibility for this, and I cannot pass the buck to anyone. Wow. So what was the first process? What was the first, you even remember that day, like, okay, apparently I've got to figure this out. What, what was that, and how, how did you create your first process? Well, the realization was, of course, that we, the manufacturer of our product refused to accept responsibility. And okay. when that happened, it was almost disbelief that how can you do such a thing? 
you know, how can you accept it? And then if you're going to go forward, we need to be able to control that. And then we started designing it. I talked with my team and said, we need to have, this is what we'll put down. And then we'll talk with a software company who can design something like this for us. And actually it's about seven or eight years old now. And we still have changes uh, as technology is moving forward. So, so you built process right into the technology. Cause a lot of the companies I work with, they're not technology driven and process might be, we're just going to agree to these 10 steps and I'm going to write them on this whiteboard and don't skip step three or four. They're really important. Other companies, very technologically driven, can't get their mind around the idea that process doesn't necessarily live in technology. Like, well, I can't have process. I don't have a process tool yet or that kind of thing. So it sounds like you really from the get go built your process into technology. We did. And it actually, uh, it became almost necessary because the products we are selling are more, more technology products. There's a lot of electronics as opposed to more mechanical controls that used to be there. You have software in washing machines which wasn't there. They were just mechanical clicker knobs before, you know. Um, so we have to be able to track data and know s things that are happening out there. I mean, nowadays people are hacking into washing machines also. So we've got to be able to, you know, <laughs> uh, be able to... Manage this. So say uh, that again. You, you, people are hacking into washing machines. What, is, what does somebody do? They put, you put you on the hot cycle instead of cold? Well, it can be anything. I mean, it can be... Uh, I'm going to shrink can, your sweater uh, and you're uh, not going to know why. Well, yeah, no, but you know, you can have leakage in the machine. You can have clothes getting damaged and, you know, um, any, anything can, can happen. So um, I'm just starting it off and, you know... Dryers particularly, they, are, they, they can cause fires. So if they run for a longer time, they're supposed to, they, they can, it can affect sensors. So our new machine, just to go back, our new washing machine, you throw in a load of clothes, it will sense the right amount of water to come in, depending on the weight of clothes. It automatically goes into the dry cycle. It will dry for the right amount of time, whether you want it damp dry or extra dry or, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and then it will, it has a refresh cycle and so on. And so the new things being developed are, Wi-Fi, and so you can have an app over here and start it or stop it. Uh, we're going to have, you can load your soap in there once a month, and then the machine will draw the right amount of soap to draw that amount of clothes that you have in there. When the detergent is finishing, then it will call us and tell us that my soap, this is, my, this is the machine in this part of the country, please send me and refill me. I'm about to finish. The owner has nothing to do with it. We, really? we are, so we just send it. Uh, to the customer and here's the soap to refill. It's finishing. Customer says, well, I didn't know it's finishing, but here it is. Wow. The machine calls us and says, my pump is breaking down. Send me a replacement. Maybe even before the customer. We're not waiting for the customer to tell us. And all those metrics are being tracked. You know? The, uh, and so we know these things before. So the biggest risk we're facing is that somebody can get into that system and do something and then it becomes a fire hazard or something, you know, uh, or water hazard. Wow. Okay. So I guess it's not necessarily, you know, the Russians, <laughs> it's, it might be somebody just tinkering and causing a problem. Yeah, that can be. I mean, there's a lot of people who have nothing else to do. It seems to me, I don't know why they're doing it, but, uh, that's well, the owner, the owner to do that, like, Oh, this will be cool. Let me, let me figure this thing yeah, out. And yeah, but it can be dangerous. And, uh, you know, uh, you have you have sensors in there for the right amount of water, and if something somebody disables that, the machine's going to overflow, and then you have a oh, and the, and then you have a liability issue. Of course, you have a whole apartment building getting flooded with with water. That's a, yeah, it's a huge problem for yeah. sure. Um, trying to think, I had that reminds me of something that I'm not going to be able to remember. But wanted to go back. You said something about the highs and lows, the worst highs or the best highs and the worst lows. 
and I, and I have this belief that, and I'm not the only, I didn't invent this. I've heard this from other people that they're, the two are linked. Like you can't, you can't like have one without the other. You can't, you, you, your ability to, the privilege of having a great high is going to be with the responsibility of a deep low. Like wh- what was your epiphany moment of that? Like, wow, this is, this is real. This is, this is tough. It's not for everybody. Well, that's a, that's a great point you made, you know, and I think most entrepreneurs are, are driven by a bigger purpose, you know, apart from just money. And so for me, the, the high, highest point and is to, is to make a sale to a customer for a product that I have conceptualized and produced and, um, it's here and I'm presenting it to a customer, let's say to a large company like Home Depot or Lowe's or whoever and saying, here's my product, and, you know, and they say, yes, we think it's a great product. Basically, somebody's believing what was what you've conceptualized and saying, fine, I believe you. I'm going to bring it to life because that is the ultimate life that a yeah. customer takes it. And, you know, otherwise you can have a great product and it doesn't sell. So that is the greatest success. That's something you've imagined and convinced somebody that he should believe your way of thinking that it's valid. And is ready to pay you for it too. Yeah, right. That's the yeah. ultimate stamp of of belief. So that is the ultimate high. Yeah. Yes, you get the money, but money passes through a company. Right. I still get a salary like everybody else. You know. Right. So it money if money flows through, money is reinvested in the company. All that goes on, but that is the high. What I think entrepreneurs really work for that what you believed in has come to fruition. And yeah. somebody believed it. And I think it's, it's some form of validation. And I, don't, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle to find out or to figure out their formula for validation. A lot of them are chasing. They're, ch- they're going after something that if you said, is that your form of validation? Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so, but I'm chasing something. So it sounds like you, you can articulate that. And I don't think everybody can. I, I, but I do believe it's some, in most cases, some form of validation. Like, Absolutely, yeah. yes. I mean, if one, if an entrepreneur wanted to take the safe way out, he'd have a job and get a salary at the end of the month. You go through all these risks because you believed in something. Uh, you believed something you thought about is a better way of doing that process or making a better widget. Ultimately, that's what right. it is. And if somebody believes you and willing to pay for it, that's the ultimate validation. Right. Conversely, the low is exactly the opposite. The ultimate low is failure for you to face your customer and say, I failed or my product failed or something you did. And the customer says, but you told me that. And you have to acknowledge that you were wrong. You're wrong or you broke your promise or. That's right. Broke your promise. Yeah. And, or, you know, and somebody says, well, you lied. Well, I didn't lie. It just didn't happen. Circumstances were beyond my control. And all of us face that. You have circumstances beyond your control. And nobody wants to believe that. You said it's going to happen, and your word was it, and you let somebody down. That is the ultimate low. Well, I think that's pr- probably true. You can extend that because um, I've, you know, I had lunch with a group of entrepreneurs today, and, and one of the things we talked about was um, we went around, ran around the table and shared experiences of when we were most scared, uh, and and several of the stories at that table had to do with the fear of losing everything or most everything very common scenario and so i I think it can boil down the common denominator of uh letting somebody down and and we are in the business of trying to meet or exceed someone's expectations pretty much universally i mean i I just thought that as as that came out of my mouth i wonder how true that is but i think it's probably pretty close and then therefore the converse is exactly what you said 
um, the lowest lows are the threat of letting somebody down that matters to us. And if it's your customer, if it's your reputation, if it's yourself, it's your spouse, your kids, that's, that's the ultimate, um, failure of an entrepreneur. And I think, and as I'm kind of talking to Sue, I think that's kind of at the root of, you know, when people say, Hey, entrepreneurship is tough and, and you don't have an idea what I mean. And you know, the rewards are maybe great, but the, but the risks are, are really greater. And you think this is fun and games on the outside. You should try it. It will, it will raise your hair. And, and this is really, um, the battlefield where life and death is at, at risk. And I think it comes down to that because we put ourselves out there a hundred percent or yeah, a hundred percent to meet or exceed someone's expectations. And we've promised we can do it. And those lows are some manifestation of like, Oh no, this is when I fail. The people who I promised I wouldn't fail. The people matter most to me, my family, my customers, the combination, everybody, everybody we've ever known for the last 30 years. Like if you, you know, cause as entrepreneurs, our, our, our communities become synonymous with the combination of our, whatever time we can carve out for our family and all the That's time right. we have for yep. it's our whole world sort of becomes binary. We're either a success or failures. That's right. There's, there's, there's no other way you, and, and actually the goals of success keep getting, keep changing because you don't start off saying, okay, in 30 years, this is what I'm going to be. You're fighting every day. Um, you know, to, in, I don't want to say survival, but in some ways it's like that. I look at what Bill Gates said that, uh, Microsoft is no more than 90 days away from going out of business. And if Bill Gates says that, well, who are we? I mean, right. you're fighting every yeah. single day, you know, your competition, you know, your limitations, you know, what the threats out there, you look at what's happening now and globally with this coronavirus uh, issue, the global supply chains. There's so many things that are popping up. It's like, you know, you're playing some kind of a, a game over there where you have all these threats coming your way and you're trying to survive and keep everybody happy. Absolutely. I mean, I remind, I, I say this a lot lately that you're, you're paid in proportion to the degree of chaos you're willing to turn into structure. And that, that may not be easy to understand with the way I say it, but it is about people want predictability. They want order in their world. They want to know that tomorrow is safe in general. That's what humanity is trying to do. And the future is unknown. The future is untamed by its, all things unstructured, unordered are, and the future is, this is exactly that. So salespeople, their job is to take money not yet earned, customers not yet found, and turn them into some form of well-understood money. Like we, I know I can work with money. It's very structured. It's very ordered. And so they're paid big money because they're converting chaos and unknown into structure and order and money that we, we can work with. Entrepreneurship is the same kind of thing. Every big business out there is in some form a, an order creating machine, taking the future in its unstructured capacity. And the more bumps you throw in the way, like, you know, uncertain economy, political turbulence, and the, the, the chaos gets wider and bigger. And so their value gets, gets higher because if they can continue to convert that into chaos, which is why the stakes are so high, because you're by definition doing something based on the un unknown, uncertain outcome. That's right. And I think it's just getting more and more uncertain, you know, uh, and, and it depends also, depending on the field you're in, uh, certain certain things are more risky, certain, certain fields are less risky, but eventually there is a certain dependence um, on, 
in the entire supply chain, whether it's uh, for services or for products or whatever, there is a great deal of uncertainty. Well, so a couple things, I, I probably need to, to wrap this up. The t two things I want to kind of maybe wrap up on is, um, you know, th looking back, what would you tell your 30 years ago self? I mean, there, there's lots in the book. I know that. And I, I, people will have, have notes to the book. People can, can uh, download it. There's an audio version of it and all that. So people have access to that. Uh, but you know, if, if there's one thing, like, what would you say? Like, you know, a tool, um, you know, what you're about to get into is going to look like this. What would you, what, what would you tell yourself? Best advice. Well, all I would say is that, uh, be as flexible as possible. Expect the unexpected. <laughs> Do not be rigid. And they're all related to the same thing. You know, do not ever stand on something and say, this is what I believe in because you'll be forced to compromise and do things you may not believe in. Because for the greater good of the company and your customers and everything out there, so all that gets thrown out. You'll be tested like you've never been tested as an individual before. So it comes down to because you're going to need to be flexible, you, the dynamic is so high, you will have to know yourself at the core. Otherwise, you won't be able to make good decisions. That's right. I mean, um, and it's not about yourself. You can't say this is what I believe in okay. because we all start off, we all believe in things. But then you have to say, no, this is what I have to do for my company, for my brand, for my employees, and ultimately for my customers. So whatever I believe in, I'm nothing, actually. You work for others. At least the transformation of that. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that's, you know. that's important. So I had this conversation again with another company I work with, but the company feels like they work for the guy who started it and we, and that's not workable, right? You know, the servant mentality is, is doesn't work. And that, and I know this guy, well, that's not what he wants. He, he wants to help these people be successful and, and it's for a, an external vision. There is a company, there is a purpose. There are things we are all servant to in the, in the entrepreneur, owner, leadership team, their job is to really take the obstacles out of the way, which is what you definitely implied and, and spoke to about like, you know, I've got to have access to the problems and the obstacles. My job is to remove those obstacles so you can be successful, so we can make this vision real, so we can all contribute together. I, I'm a paid employee, I get a salary, and I have a job that's really important, and that is to get the obstacles out of your way so you can make your highest contribution and and, the, and the, the purpose external from me can, can become real. Well, to your point, it's very interesting. And sometimes, uh, I mean, we have defined in our company that the customer is the most important person and we have to, we do everything for the customer. And sometimes it happens that we have a complaint from a customer or something happens and then we have a team meeting and then somebody says, well, the reason, and I say, well, why did you do something like this? So what, what was your rationale? Because I, I need to know your thought process. And the person said, well, if we had done it this way, it would have cost the company too much, uh, too much money, mm. and we would have lost money. And and I then I go back and I say, listen, if you were a customer, would you have liked that to happen to you? We want to follow the golden rule, which is treat your customer the way you want to be treated, treat others the way you want to be treated. So, would you like such a thing? Yeah. To yeah. You, yeah. Would you, if you were a customer, would you want to be treated that way? And the person says no. I said, well then why are you treating our customer that way? Yes, it cost us money. And a business owner, of course, I don't like you telling me that. But <laughs> So don't tell me that. You should have taken care of the customer in the first place. Yeah. So that is, you go back to the roots of it that, uh, you know, um, 
th- that's the only way forward. Yeah. Especially nowadays, and we deal in consumer products where you have reviews and blogs and so on. So there's no uh, secrets out there. Everything is out in the open. People say what they want, and there's a whole lot different world out there, and you cannot afford to alienate any of your customers. Agreed. So what would you like to, you know, I think we covered a lot, and I really appreciate all you shared. What's on your mind? Is there anything else on your mind you'd like to share before we wrap? Well, I think... uh, you know, uh, when I was writing the book, I wanted to actually talk about the definition of an entrepreneur and see what that is. And I think uh, over, the, over the years, I've come to believe that entrepreneurship is actually a gift, you know, which I didn't think uh, it was, you know. Uh, and at sometimes one actually felt it was a burden to be thinking independently and not having a steady paycheck and taking risks of yourself and your family and so on. But actually, the way entrepreneurs think, and you have to think, where you have the ability to make things happen, to conceptualize, and to anything you can think of is up to you to make it happen, to create demand for a product, to manufacture a product, to call anyone and do anything to promote your business and what you believe in. Ultimately, not everybody can do that. And it's a gift. And to realize that is a very powerful. And after 30 years, I can say I finally got wisdom. Wow. Wow, that's really powerful. As I feel the same way, and I've said the same thing, after I sold my business, that's when I came in touch with it, right? So I sold the business, got rid of the problems I needed to get rid of, uh, was on to the next chapter of my life, and I did find myself really sad uh, that I didn't have that freedom, we'll call it. I'll call it freedom. And it was an identity thing to some extent. You know, I, I, my identity had changed. I wasn't a business owner anymore. I was a former business owner. That is a very different animal. At least that's how I felt it. And I, and I, and I said that over and over again. I was like, I lament the loss of the gift I had in my, in my possession, and I would have treated it differently the entire 10 years I ran the business if I knew, knew then what I know now. Now, I was running the wrong business. That was not the business for me, and, there was, and, I, and I've learned what I needed to learn. I was on the path I needed to be on, for sure, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it, but, uh, but I, it was definitely the feeling I had. It was a gift, and I would liken it. I think entrepreneurship is a brand or manifestation of freedom, which we hear lots about, the responsibility. Freedom is not a one-way street. Like, you know, how much freedom do you want? All of it. Oh, I don't think you do. <laughs> it's when you get the responsibility that goes with freedom. You have the freedom to break everything. You have the freedom to d- disappoint people. You have the freedom to fail. All of that goes with the freedom to succeed. Yep. And that goes in with it. So I, I do think that the downside is exactly the opposite into the upside. And so it is absolutely a gift. And I love that you said it that way. I really appreciate uh, that. I think it's a great place to end. I appreciate you saying that. How do, if people want to learn more about the book, want to uh, learn more about you, how do people find you? Thank you, Mark. It's a great, uh, great conversation we've had. Uh, people want to buy the book. It's available on Amazon and it's available in, in um, three different versions, which is all three, uh, paperback, Kindle and audio. My name is Atul Veer, A-T-U-L, last name is Veer, V-I-R, so just look up my name, or the name of the book is called Underdog Thinking. The subtitle is A Bold Idea, A Business Adventure, and 101 Lessons Learned Along the Way. So that's You're Doing It Wrong with Mark Henderson Leary, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. (laughs) 